Welcome to the Product Business Podcast. This is a show where I interview bootstrappers and entrepreneurs about the business of building and selling products online. This is an episode of Dev Chats where I talk to another developer about building products and code and we get pretty deep into technical stuff. So if that's not your thing, just wait until the next episode with an entrepreneur where we talk more about their backstory and the business side of things. I am your host, Scott Bollinger. If you enjoy the show, please give us a rating or press the subscribe button. All right. If I ever get my technical stuff together, we can actually do a podcast here. Uh, Today, I'm excited to have Jason Langsdorf with me, uh, formerly of Gatsby, and now he is doing his live streams on Learn with Jason on YouTube. And what else are you doing these days, Jason? Um, I am doing, yeah, the, the live stream happens <laughs> this week. It happened four times. Uh, and I, I imagine it's going to pick up to probably about three times a week on average. Um, I am also building a lot of educational materials. I am doing light consulting work, um, and I'm, uh, working on a couple of products. Cool. So you're, you're, we were talking about your Gatsby career uh Mm -hmm. and you were kind of saying that even though you have left gatsby um everything was amicable and it wasn't like a a firing or anything weird like that it was just kind of like you guys uh you decided to to part ways and um and you're still going to be working with gatsby and it's not like hey don't talk to me about gatsby anymore which which i was excited (laughs) to hear Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, it was a very like very amicable. We honestly, we just kind of hit a natural break point. The the company's been growing. Um, I joined when there were five of us, and as the company's expanded, I have kind of fulfilled a, a series of different roles. I, I in the early days, I was helping with you know strategy and vision and setting company values. And um, as we've grown, I kind of accidentally optimized myself almost entirely out of the company, and so the the work that I've been doing with the live streams and building courses for Egghead or teaching workshops for front end masters, that sort of work is really all that I've been doing. I wasn't really doing anything with the team. And so we just kind of hit a point where I was like, you know, it doesn't really make sense for me to still be officially Gatsby. It makes sense for me to be more of a um, like a community educator because that's really what I am. And um, and it also removes any any hint of like shilling here because now anything that I'm teaching is is stuff that I believe in and I think that that is ultimately I, I think that's ultimately better for the community at large like I don't want anybody to believe that I'm doing this because I have to I'm doing it because I believe in it um, and so I think that's that's good for for all of us I hope yeah it's it's cool to see that you're still gonna be working with Gatsby because it's not like well they're not paying me anymore so now i'm gonna go use like statomic or like jekyll or something because i really didn't want to use gatsby anyways or what you know it's like not it's not about that yeah no i mean i am excited because it opens a couple doors like there's some stuff there's some things that i've wanted to try that i just haven't had a chance to like but now i can bring you know i want to bring some of the view vixens on to on to learn with jason and learn how view works because i've really Mm -hmm. only used it in a cursory fashion or like yeah. maybe I want to get the the Eleventy crew on, or or talk to Tanner Lindsley about React Static, or like these other things that I've I keep hearing about. I've seen them; they look really cool. I just haven't tried them yet. So why not have them come on, learn with Jason? And now there's no conflict of interest for me to learn 
anything that's interesting to me as opposed to things that are both interesting to me and aligned with my, you know, with my employment. So it's, uh, it, I'm, I'm excited because, it, you know, I feel very much like, uh, I feel, I feel like Aladdin and Jasmine, you know, it's a whole new world. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You're on a magic carpet right now. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I love learning new stuff as well. And, you know, Vue is one of those things I also haven't uh, dove into, but I'm an Angular guy. And so mm. when I look at Vue, it's like, this is like the same thing, except it just is like V4 instead of NG4 and like all this right. stuff. So I just haven't had time to dive into it. Um, but it's really interesting. I, you know, this is one of those things, like as a developer, you kind of, everything is interesting and you want to learn everything. And sometimes mm -hmm. I have to tell myself, like, stop trying to learn everything because it's not doing anyone any good except just satisfying your own, like, uh, imagination. You know, mm -hmm. do you ever feel that way? Or, or, or are you just like, I'm going to do what I want to do because it's fun? Um, so I'm a big believer in learning things. So there's, there's a difference between learning for fun and learning for professional advancement. Um, I'm a firm believer that curiosity is one of the best ways to build a great career. I think you should you should chase down things that are interesting to you, but I think that you have to hold that separate from your day job because if you're working on a team, if you're always learning something new and that's always affecting the way that you write your code and that results in a lot of churn, which makes it kind of stressful for your team, it makes it hard to keep the, the product consistent. Um, so I, I'm a big believer in curiosity as a hobby and as a, a like kind of side hustle for personal development and stability and well-reasoned changes in in professional uh and you know in your day job mm -hmm. yeah that's, that's a good way to put it it uh sometimes i you know i i found like gatsby and i i start like learning react because i i'm loving this whole gatsby thing and um, sometimes I'm like, you know what, I could just build this in Angular because I already know Angular. And mm. like, so why am I doing all this? Like why? But then, I don't know, then there's another part of me that's just like, it's great to learn new things and, and React is, I, I feel like it's got more popularity than Angular, at least in, in my circles and like it's worth mm. my time to learn. And yeah, I don't know, it's just like internal conflict I have where I'm like, should I just be focusing on what's good for the user? And maybe that's just building like, with jQuery, you know, cause you're just getting stuff done or whatever. Um, well, so, so this is kind of the interesting thing, right? Is, is as technology is advancing, it has trade-offs in all directions. So one of the things that, that developers tend to focus on a lot is novelty. We want to learn something new. Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the reason that many of us are in this industry is because it's really fun to learn how stuff works. And so as the industry progresses, you want to continue doing that. Um, but beyond novelty, there's also developer experience. So can I do the same things I was doing before, but faster? That's why jQuery was such a powerful tool. It took these really difficult to use browser APIs and wrapped them with this really easy to use uh, API and great docs. And so you could, you could go in and you'd be like, all right, I want to send an asynchronous call and then put that result on the page. And if you were doing that with plain JavaScript, ES5 JavaScript, you would be you know, you'd have a hard time. Um, but if you did it with jQuery, it was like five lines of code and you felt great about it. So 
that was not just for novelty, that was for developer experience. That, and, and ultimately that resulted in a better user experience because jQuery added all these supports for uh, you know error handling and animation and these things that made the browser experience better for people who use the apps we were building. Um, frameworks like Angular and React and Vue bring this idea of you know the next level of abstraction um, so there's novelty, we want to learn it, it's exciting, but there's developer experience, things that were easy to do in jQuery, but you know, or like that you would get part of the way there and then it was really challenging to say manage state or um, you know, how would you handle like a true app in jQuery? That stuff would get pretty messy. Vue, Angular, React, they make that a little bit easier. And then there's the next level of abstraction on top, and and you know you get into things like Redux or or whatever it is that you're using, uh, RxJS, some kind of some kind of like further abstraction of of how to manage data, and those are really exciting, and sometimes they're a good idea. Like a, a sufficiently complex app probably would benefit from from structure because if you've got a ton of people working on something, then using Redux is boilerplate and it's it's kind of a it's like some ceremony but having hoops to jump through keeps a team healthy because they know the way to do the thing um but then again you know if if you go too far in that direction and you're just refactoring to typescript because you saw it you know you saw that like some of your your javascript heroes are using it and it's a thing that you really want to do um, if you don't have a good business case for it, well, why are you doing that? Why are you taking on that technical debt? Why are you forcing everyone on your team to learn this new thing? Um, I think there's there's a benefit, there's a there's a trade-off across a bunch of different axes when you're looking at this, but like I would say the first one is, is there something that actually needs to be built? Like if it just works and it's fine, you might not need to fix it. Um, so if there's a thing that needs to be built, then you have to look at the technical requirements and like, is this going to be something that is a one-off that gets built for a week? It lives for an event. You know, you maybe you're building like a conference page for for your company's annual like demo, and once that's over, it basically sits as an archived page and never gets maintained or updated. Um, in that case, maybe just build whatever quick thing you can find and just get it up and get it over with. Uh, is it something that's going to expand over time and live for five, ten years, or or be a, a product that lives for? decades. Um, if that's the case, then, you know, work on the architecture. Think about how it's going to go through multiple developers who have to inherit that code or how it's going to work on a team of 700, like, you know, the team at IBM working on IBM cloud. How do you make conventions and, and put in the right guardrail so that you get a great user experience, a great developer experience, and the thing survives beyond the original author? Um, those are all the, the kinds of things that you have to start thinking about. And, you know, it, it, you get into fourth dimensional chess when you start thinking that way. But if you get it right, you end up getting something that is good enough to solve your use case and flexible enough to grow as the, as the thing evolves over time. When we talk about these front end frameworks, it seems to me like a, the, a big direction that the web is going is with these static front end frameworks. And I, I know it's not just me because I hear guys that are even like, like Laravel guys talking about it on their podcasts being like, Hey, everybody else is going like react front end. Should we like mm. hang on um, to our like database websites or should we just like say screw it and just like learn react. Um, and so, um, what is your vision of the future with, you know, React, Gatsby, whatever else? Um, do you think like most front ends are just going to become these like hybrid of like 
make everything as static as possible and then throw in some dynamic stuff where it needs to be dynamic. Um, um I, I, I think the, so what we're doing really is, is we're talking about where we cache. So if you're building an, a PHP site, you are probably going to put that up on a server somewhere and then you're going to put it on Nginx and then you're going to try to put, or, you know, maybe you're going to put a varnish cache on there. And that varnish cache is a static website. It's the, the built asset stored in the cloud somewhere near the edge so that people get that instead of ever having to hit your server. And, um, then you, you run into problems with like cache invalidation or whatever. So then you move it a little bit closer and you think about something like, all right, well, let's go, let's go with React. And so then you're going to use Next. And Next is a running server. Um, but again, it's going to have like a caching layer so that when whenever possible, you're trying to serve just what's already built instead of having to do that work and add that delay where the server has to build something and send it back so that the the people trying to load the site can can get it as quickly as possible. Um, static site generators just move that cache to the front where if something only changes, you know, a couple times an hour, you can easily build that cache ahead of time and just ship that as the website. And so it's, it's not really a change in fundamentally how we're serving applications. It's a change in how we build and how we, how we treat the cache. Um, with, a, with a varnish cache, that's kind of like we don't think very much about that cache. It's, it's a thing that gets built and we hope that it's invalidated properly so that people don't get stuck looking at an old version of the website for, for a week or two while, they're, while their cache clears. Um, with a Gatsby site, that cache gets replaced every time that you rebuild the site. Um, so it's a way of being intentional about our cache and, and being intentional about the way we think about our data. So I think what's, what's interesting is we're, we're not inventing new things here. We're just moving around the components. So with Gatsby, we're generating a cache up front. We are, um, instead of having a server that runs all the time, we have a server that runs once to build these assets and then puts them up on a CDN. Um, when you have dynamic stuff with a you know a PHP site, that PHP server is always running and you would just hit an endpoint that would do some work and send some data back. Um, if you're doing it the way that, that I used to write PHP, then your view is your API. Like the, the template would do the business logic that would get the right data on the screen and then send it back up. With JavaScript, you send up kind of a, an empty template and then there's an API endpoint that does business logic and sends back just data and then you would stick those together either at build time like in Gatsby or at on the client side like with a, a standard kind of create React app thing. Um, and if you have that API, you you know you can still do that with a static site. You just end up building a serverless Lambda function, or you build an API that lives somewhere else. And again, we're not getting rid of servers; we're just moving them somewhere else. Like when you say serverless, what you're actually saying is, I'm going to use you know Amazon or uh, or Google's their server setup and just upload these functions to it, so that I don't have to think about the server implementation. I just have to think about the business logic. Um, so a lot of what we're doing is we're we're abstracting away the DevOps part of managing these these web experiences and turning them into a, an experience that's almost purely content and presentation driven, which is kind of nice. And and that's one of the reasons why I think this is so powerful is that you know you you have um, you have this option as a, a developer now to 
only work on the parts that are relevant to your business. You don't have to do the repetitive parts like how do I stand up a server? How do I scale that server horizontally to serve, you know, hundreds of thousands of concurrent users? All that stuff is just taken care of when you start using this Jamstack paradigm because it's built to take advantage of existing uh, infrastructure that does that. CDNs are designed to scale infinitely or as close to infinitely as we can currently get. Um, Lambda servers are designed to be cheap and to do like one thing very well. And so that enforces good architecture of like stateless functions. You can't, you can't really store state in a, in a Lambda function. So you don't have these issues where, you know, you're passing things around by, by reference instead of as parameters. And there's this, this kind of amazing, um, accidental optimization of, of practice when you start following these things. And, and it's because people smarter than us abstracted away the, the architecture and told us, all you have to do is write your logic, put it in this wrapper and everything's going to be great. And so we have to unlearn some bad habits that I like that I had from PHP where I would just, you know, I'd write one big file that was a, effectively a giant switch statement and that had every, every page in it. Um, but you know, it's it, like once we've learned that, once we've made that that shift, the things that we build are are higher performance. They're easier to maintain. They're going to be cheaper to host. Like it costs nothing to build a site with a serverless API and throw it up on Netlify. Like for the first quite a few uh, users, you just don't pay to have a site to like host a site anymore. And that's with the the you know, the SSL certificate that's with the, the serverless stuff that's with a free database tier from someone like graph CMS or something like you, you have these amazing opportunities to just build cool stuff and get it out there and just test it for free. And then you pay when you start to make money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Actually, I actually moved one of my WordPress sites to a Gatsby front end. And, um, actually I moved it from WordPress to just Gatsby with Markdown Oh, cool. And I ended up, I was paying like $35 a month for the hosting and then I moved it to Netlify and now I'm paying nothing. <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So one of the, one of the things with Jamstack that I see being kind of like a, maybe not a problem, but an interesting new thing is, is the, the client sort of CMS or the client interface for interacting with their website. Um, you know, I've worked with WordPress for many years and one of the things that clients love and that a lot of people who work with it love is that you can use like a page builder and you can move content around in your site visually or you can go in and you can like add plugins and you can um, edit all the pages and it's on this very familiar interface um, and it's not perfect, you know, it's far from it, but it just has all these advantages where if you move to something like I don't know, Netlify CMS or Markdown or whatever it is, um, there, are, there, are, there are all these problems that something like WordPress has already solved, such as like um, editor permissions. Like if you have a team of 10 people and one of them's an admin, one of them's an author, one of them's an editor, one of them's, you know, something else people are buying stuff from your shop and they need a, a you know customer permission where they can only see their account page or whatever mm. um, things like this when you get into the jam stack are difficult problems to solve um, where do you see the the cms portion or the the back end whatever you want to call it the the ui for clients and non-technical people um, going with you know with jam stack i mean i i honestly think it'll probably stick with stuff like WordPress. 
um, the the UIs for well, I mean, you so it depends on if you're talking about the the site owners like content management or if you start talking about like dashboards. Um, but all of that that backend stuff like identity management and um, and you know, having a database so that you can you know track your orders or or create projects and and kind of track those. That sort of information is relatively straightforward to manage with something like Prisma. Um, Prisma is a, they're like, I believe they're about to launch a serverless implementation of Prisma, which means that you just throw it up on a Lambda and you get a fully functional ORM that's hooked to a database of whatever flavor you prefer. Um, and that's just going to work. If you're using something like OneGraph, OneGraph has this um, JSON web token implementation where you can just build these auth tokens that will hold your GitHub data and your, like, you can just load, they support a bunch of services, GitHub, Gmail, Spotify, uh, YouTube, all sorts of stuff. And you are able to, like, build a token with roles that says, if I'm a GitHub user who's, like part of this organization, then I have access to change, you know, the the Spotify playlist for this website, whatever, however you want to do that. And they will generate that as part of an API call that you can then use to do things on that user's behalf. And that's all handled in a, another layer. So your, your front end, your Gatsby site, you say, hey, uh, log in with your, your, your Gmail account or something. And that goes through one graph, which then sends you back this jot. Uh, JWT, um, which is short for JSON Web Token. Sorry, I just went like eight layers of jargon deep there. Um, <laughs> sorry. sorry, JSON Web Token, JWT, JOT for short. So uh, one graph, once you log in, will send you back this JOT that you can then send to Prisma. And Prisma will check and say, if this person is logged in and they have the role of admin, let them change this thing. Otherwise, they can only read. And all of that stuff is just possible now. Um, and it was always possible, but now you don't have to roll it yourself. Right. And and so that's uh, that's kind of a really exciting development here because it means that as JavaScript developers, if, if you are someone who started up on the front end and you don't feel super comfortable writing deep node stuff, you don't feel super comfortable with the security concerns, you don't really want to get into the OAuth 2 workflow because that can get a little, you know, that's a little head bendy when you first start. Um, all of those things are, are not abstracted away, but they're made so much more approachable now that you can just throw that into your app. Like Netlify Identity, um, Swix, Sean Wang, he built a, a React hook called Use Identity that you just put in your, your Netlify endpoint and it abstracts all of that. And it just gives you whether or not you're logged in and a login button. Hmm. It's incredible. Wow. So all of that, just it just happens. And then from there, you can do more stuff. And those types of implementation, I heard Auth0 is working on something similar where you're just going to be able to import like use auth and drop in a, a couple like API keys. And from there, you'll be able to just instantly say like, is this person logged in? Show a login button. You know, like it's it's incredible stuff. Um, and it's only going to get easier as we learn more. Like React Hooks opened up a whole bunch of doors for, for developer experience. Right. Now, when we talk about um, when we talk about Gatsby and login and things, um, I, you know, if, if someone who's not familiar with Gatsby might, it, it's a static site generator, but it's also just a React app and you can do mm -hmm. anything you can with React with it, which means it's not just static. Uh, right. You know, you can use Apollo to use to do dynamic queries for things like comments. Um, 
And so for something like login, um, how does that work within the Gatsby world? Um, yeah, I have a couple examples of this somewhere. I think if you if you go to the Gatsby site and search auth, there's a I think it's using auth or something like that. Um, and then I've got uh, live streams with um, Swix where we did Netlify identity and uh, Otto from the Auth0 team where we we set that up and also with um, Aaron Parecki from Okta where we set up like a really enterprisey uh, Auth experience. And in all of those cases, the, the way that it works is like you, you know, Auth is a, a client side thing. Um, you wouldn't want, like at least I wouldn't want uh, architecturally to have a um, any user data generated into static assets. I would want that to be kind of locked away. So I render a dashboard kind of skeleton, like a template that doesn't have any content in it. And then when that loads, I check for an auth token. And if I see one, then I will make a request for the logged in users data and populate that thing. So kind of what you would do in any standard React app. And Gatsby is smart enough that if you're using like a, um, a lifecycle method like uh, use effect for, for hooks or component did mount, yeah, component did mount for uh, for class-based components, then React, like Gatsby just won't run those because it doesn't do that during SSR. Um, and so, you know, the server-side rendering part will just render the the loading state. And then when it hits the browser and rehydrates, it will it will populate. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a trade-off you can make. In my opinion, there aren't a lot of good reasons to server render user data. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard lo I've heard lots of of uh, different arguments for this. I think that you know you you can make an argument for why you would want to do it, and I'm sure there's a use case that I'm not thinking of that that makes a lot of sense. But like in in my opinion, I haven't found a lot of good reasons. Like the it's just you know it's not something that's really necessary anymore. Bra you know we're not trying to get this stuff SEO indexed. Um, once it gets on screen, if you've written re accessible React code, it's completely usable by keyboard and screen readers. Um, it's, you know, it's all selectable and, and the, the, you know, it's, it comes down to your markdown, not where it came from. So if you, if you've done a good job of, of writing accessible HTML, the app is usable by anybody. Um, it, the only use case would really be like, is there for some reason a, a portion of your user base that will 100% have JavaScript disabled that still needs to be able to use your app? And if that's the case, then you can't really use JavaScript auth at all because they wouldn't be able to log in. They'd have to use some kind of a server-side auth. Um, so at that point, you're looking at, um, you know, PHP, Ruby, Node, something on the back end to handle that stuff. Yeah, and and it doesn't need to be rendered lightning fast because somebody's logging in and they'll wait to see their data. It's not like they're hitting the site for the first time or it's getting page speed indexed, like scores from Google or whatever. So. Yeah. And, and you can still build really fast experiences. Like when, when I was at IBM, one of the first projects that I worked on was the, um, the IBM cloud, uh, account page, which was like comically slow. I think when I, when I inherited it, it took up like close to a minute. It was like 47 seconds to load. And, you know, we, we didn't change the backend APIs. We didn't make them any faster. But what we did was we, we looked at the front-end architecture and we found that all of the API calls were, were synchronous and sequential. So when the site loaded, and, and I mean, there were like, it's an enterprise app. It had just accumulated a bunch of junk over time. So it was a Dojo app. And then Dojo, after that finished loading, would, would kick off a load 
of jQuery and then jQuery would load React and then React would send off an, an async call for one API. And then when that came back, it sent back another one for a different set of data. And like each of those things would take, you know, a second or two. And the, the historical data was really slow because it's billions of unindexed queries or unindexed uh, data entries. And we had to go through all those records and assemble like user data in a useful way. Um, so we weren't able to make those, those unstructured uh, entries any faster in the database, but by running all that stuff in parallel and cutting out the Dojo and the jQuery and all that stuff, we were able to do something that was very slow when it was um, client-side rendered and, and was also slow when it was server rendered. Um, yeah, it just it like cut all this time out and we got that page loading. It was on screen contentfully in like a second and a half. And we had actual data back from the API in like 17 seconds. So, I mean, it still wasn't like fast, but it was as slow, it was as fast as it could be given the limitations of the back end and like how unoptimized that data was. Right. Interesting. Um, so what, you know, you, you do with Learn With Jason, you look at a lot of different technologies. Um, you know, you've been at IBM working on big stuff and I'm sure you've consulted on, you know, smaller stuff too. Um, you know, what's, what's new or exciting to you or what are you looking, looking at towards in the future? Um, just that you think would be interesting to talk about. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in the space that I'm seeing a lot of companies move into. Like Zite just released, um, the, like this preview technology and Netlify released Netlify dev. And these are kind of, it's like, all, all of the convenience that I wanted in something like, um, you know, in the, the case of, of Netlify or Zite stuff, um, it's like when you open a pull request, it will show you the screenshots of the routes that changed. So you can just see immediately, this is what changed, and I can click through to look at the preview of those pages. Um, that type of convenience is huge. And Netlify Dev, that's like all the promise that I wanted from something like Docker, and none of the the ceremony. I just install the Netlify CLI and I go into a folder that's got a project in it and I run Netlify dev. They figure out that it's a Gatsby site, so they pump that up. And then if I've got uh, Netlify functions, they'll run those locally so I can run my, you know, my quote unquote API. And I can run all of that as like part of my local machine. I didn't have to install anything uh, other than the Netlify CLI. I'm not trying to figure out if I've already got like that Docker thing up to date, or if I need to get a new image or, or a bunch of stuff that I don't really understand. Um, and it's all run locally. So like it's, it's this really, really powerful model. And the cool thing about it is by using serverless functions and by using static site generators, because the output is all static assets, we have this amazing ability to not have to run like a big Docker container so that we can spin up a database and have the right PHP runtime or the Ruby runtime or whatever, so that we can simulate the conditions of our server. Static assets are static assets. They run in a browser. So Netlify dev is just getting those static assets packaged up and just showing them to you in the browser. Um, and so th this is kind of what I'm really excited about is that the new wave of Jamstack things, like what's happening in this space, I don't think the concepts themselves are particularly novel. I think that, you know, we've we've already been doing a lot of what Jamstack stuff is doing in various forms since the beginning of the internet. Um, 
What's fascinating about it though, is it, it's bringing us closer to that original simplicity where you would, you know, just write a, create an index.html and then type some baseline HTML and open that in your browser and you could see it and it would work that type of immediate feedback. I, you know, if you're, if you're using Gatsby, when you're running Netlify dev or, or just Gatsby develop, you run, you know, Gatsby new, get your site and then you run Gatsby develop and it gives you a URL and that shows you what you're working on. And when you change it, as soon as you hit save, it reloads in the browser. So you get this instant feedback. You're back to there. You know, there's not like boilerplate to set up. Gatsby new does all the boilerplate to set up. You're looking at a, a functional site with content that you can edit. And so I love that we're, we're reducing the barrier to entry. Um, you know, and, and yeah, you could say like, oh, these are abstractions. What if your abstractions break? It's like, well, yeah, okay, I get that. But like, I don't know. I, I think we're, we're all working at different layers of abstractions. And I, I try not to get offended when the abstractions that are new um, violate my expectations for whatever abstractions I started with. Um, and, you know, I, I try not to get like holier than thou because it's all just abstractions on abstractions. I don't know how a browser is getting the HTML file and then breaking that down and showing me something on the screen. I just know that it does that. So that's the abstraction I started with. So when somebody starts with like React and their abstraction is they write some JSX and then Gatsby shows it to them in real time in their, their local host 8000, you know, that's the abstraction they started with. They don't need to know how that works. They just know that it does. Uh, same as I did with HTML in my browser. So I don't, I try not to begrudge that to people. Um, cause I mean, obviously your life is easier if you understand how the tools work all the way down, but like, this is not a rabbit hole that anybody's going to get to the bottom of it's turtles all the way down. Like if I get into the, the way that browsers are showing HTML, then I'm getting into way that like, you know, the, the compilers, like how, do, how does JavaScript get parsed down into bytecode? How does bytecode get used by a computer? What's happening at like the machine code level? How does that turn into to binary? How do the, how does the, like, how do the electronics in my computer, how do we actually physically flip that bit so that it's like goes from a one to a zero? How the hell did we figure it? You know, it, like it just, you'll just keep going and going and going until eventually you're like, did we invent electricity? How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there is, I feel like there is a point where you do need to go down. For example, if you start with React and you don't even know how to write CSS and you're writing CSS and JS and you think that like max width is camel cased in CSS because that's how you've been writing it in CSS and JS, like that's kind of a problem. Like you should know how real CSS works and how HTML works. And you should know that like a React component is really spitting out HTML and CSS is really what's happening in the browser. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think academically, I agree with you. Like it is always helpful to understand the, the history, but you can build full React apps for your entire career and you might never have to look at HTML or real CSS. And <laughs> that would you know, be a very isolated environment though. Like not it, many I people mean, it, live in that. Yeah, I, well, I mean, and we'll see because a lot of companies now are, are starting with React as their base. And so they, you know, they may never, like their legacy code will be React with styled system. Um, and so, you know, for that group of people, depending on how the industry evolves, if React becomes a standard, because, you know, like I, I grew up in an era where you would sometimes write XML or you'd have to make a SOAP request. Um, I remember having to know the difference between XHTML 
and HTML four or whatever it was like when, you know, when like sometimes it was all caps and sometimes it was no caps and sometimes they were self-closing and sometimes they weren't, um, those, those sorts of things that like were not abstracted away in the, the internet explorer versus Netscape days. And those types of, of things, they just don't matter anymore. Um, we like HTML five, CSS three, they started to smooth over a lot of those differences between what used to be a huge problem back in the back in the battle days of, of the early browser wars. Like and, browser prefixes. Like you don't you don't need right. to know how to write browser prefixes anymore because every CSS framework does it for you or you don't even need it. Well in and in most cases, yeah, the browsers have standardized enough that you don't need browser prefixes. And and so that's kind of what I mean is like the the abstractions are always changing and evolving and, and it's helpful to be able to go deeper, but it doesn't help me to know that XHTML ever existed because it's not used anymore. And like knowing SOAP, maybe from like an like a archaeological perspective, um, that's a, a skill set that will help me if I go into a certain legacy code base at some point in my in my future. But like in general, knowing SOAP is not a useful skill anymore. And I'm not saying that that like React is going to replace HTML and CSS, but what I'm saying is that it's now a viable option for someone to start at React and kind of build a career around that. And if they need to go deeper, they can always do that research and figure it out. But like outside of academic pursuit, there's not, there's no longer an imperative. And I, and I try not to, to make that like a moral thing because it's, it, you're not, you're never morally required to learn anything. You can, you know, lots of people never learn any code. And so if somebody comes in and they learn just what they need to get their job done and they do good work, more power to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I know you have a hard stop here soon. I'm going to, I'm going to end it here. It, um, where can people find you? Uh, the easiest place to find me is langstorf.com for my, um, my blog, which is like more about self-improvement than about code really. Um, and then I also have learnwithjason.dev, which is where I post the, the schedule for upcoming live streams and the, um, the previous episodes of, of the live stream. Oh, and then come find me on Twitter. I, I, I like, uh, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, so that's the best place to reach out if you want to talk. Sounds good. Thanks for being on the show, Jason. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.